0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Hi, I'm Hilary Acer, welcoming you to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, an ongoing exploration about how to improve health and healthcare. Physician assistant remains one of the fastest growing professions in the U.S., with employment of PAs projected to grow nearly 30% in the next decade, far outpacing the rest of the medical field. There's been a growth in PA education programs as well, with two dozen expected to come online by 2025. Today, we're going to check in with the director of one of the oldest PA programs in the country to take a look at the current state of PA education and how the profession is changing For that, I'm happy to welcome Jonathan Bowser, Associate Professor at University of Colorado Denver School of Medicine and Director of the Child Health Associate, Physician Assistant Program, consistently ranked among one of the top PA programs in the nation by U.S. News and World Report. Mr. Bowser worked in family medicine as a PA before moving into the education arena in 2006, eventually rising to lead the CHAPA program a decade ago. He served on many committees and boards in support of the profession and is the former president of the Physician Assistant Education Association. Thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Thanks, Hillary. It's great to be here.
0: We're happy to have you here today. I'd love to start with learning more about you and what first got you interested in becoming a PA, especially because you've started your career in biochemistry, so why the change?
1: Yeah, it's I, I was the sort of classic PA path back in, in the day. It's sort of changed now, but back then, it, there were quite a few of us who were second career, people looking for something different to do, something maybe that provided a little more meaning in our lives, a little more connection with our communities. And so I was doing benchtop research, had been doing that for about 10 years, and just needed to find that, to find something else that gave me more meaning. And so I explored health professions and zeroed in on the PA profession that was so so attractive for so many reasons to me. And the rest is history. I, I started down that path, and I have really loved every moment of it.
0: That's amazing. And you actually graduated from the program that you now run. I'd love to learn a little bit more about that path, especially on your journey to becoming a leader.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We talk so much about leadership and it's, and it's kind of this broad concept. I, I I was certainly that person who didn't see myself as a leader in any context or any, by any definition of the term, I was just sort of finding my way and discovering what I liked and, and what was challenging to me and intriguing. And so I became a, a clinical PA and come from a long line of teachers in my family. And I suspected I would always get back to teaching. And an opportunity arose in my own program. And I came back and began teaching. I did really didn't see myself pursuing leadership at that time. And then the opportunity, the director of the program stepped down and she talked to me about considering jumping in as the interim director of the program and seeing how that felt. And I think she had a suspicion that I would like it. I, I wasn't sure. was reluctant, did it, and really enjoyed the ability, I think, in, in these leadership roles, the ability to do, it sort of amplifies your ability to get things done that you're really passionate about. And that part of it's very satisfying. So then from from there, you're becoming the director of the program gave me some confidence, I think, in my ability to lead. And so that led me down other paths, including leadership roles on this campus, um, national leadership roles. And I just keep letting my curiosity guide me in exploring new things to this day.
0: Well, it sounds like staying open to those kind of possibilities and being curious, as you mentioned, was quite fruitful for you in your career. And, you know, maybe just if you, if you don't mind, we can go back a little bit in time to the PA program when you were there. I'd love to hear what that was like for you and maybe what the program was like back then.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I was a science person, a science nerd, and I had never really explored the clinical side of things until I came to this program. So we're a clinical education program, obviously, and, and, and it's quite different from just basic science. It's very applied, and that was new and exciting for me as a student. And, and then teaching in this program is really unique also in that we have this fusion of obviously didactic classroom-based teaching that leads ultimately to clinical teaching, bedside teaching, and learning in the clinical setting. And that was very new and different and exciting to me. And, and just a little bit about our program. We, we are, as you mentioned in the introduction, we're uh, a very established older program. We uh, were founded in 1968 one of the very early programs, and we our program had a very traditional curriculum. It's very much basic science, then followed sequentially by clinical classes, clinical science, and then a year spent in the clinical setting, and that was really the structure of our curriculum until not long ago when we decided, when I really kind of pushed us to change that, and I'd love to talk about that if we have time, about the, the curricular transformation that we underwent.
0: We'll definitely get into that as I think, you know, we're seeing a a trend across different education programs that they are becoming more multimedia, they're integrating clinical education a lot earlier, for example. But maybe before we get into the curriculum side of things, can you give us just a broad overview of the program and, you know, what differentiates it aside from being one of the oldest and most established PA programs?
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, we're, we're an odd program that we started in the 60s. We started, our founder was a pediatrician by the name of Henry Silver. And he was talking with Eugene Stead at Duke, Dick Smith, who was at um, the University of Washington. Those were the two founding, pro- you know, Duke and then University of Washington were the first two programs. And he liked the model, but was really more interested in a model that was more similar to nurse practitioner training in that you would be specialized in the program and go into that specialty. And what evolved and, and has, has lasted is a generalist model of PA training where you all PAs are essentially trained in with the same background and specialization occurs when you go into your practice. And that is actually a better model, I think. I, I with my apologies to the late Dr. Silver, I, I think that generalist model actually took hold for good reasons. So, but interestingly, when we started, we were the child health associate program, not a PA program. We were training in the PA model, but these were pediatric. PAs that only practiced in PEDS. So for our first 10 years, all of our graduates went into PEDS. And then it it became clear that that model was not sticking and we became a PA program. We keep the child health associate name as a historical kind of, it's sort of honoring our history, but it really has no legal bearing anymore. And in fact, most of our grads now don't practice in pediatrics we still offer expanded training in PEDS because it's what we're proud of and it's something that we're very good at, but we train generalist PAs as do all PA programs. And then the other thing I'll just mention is we're a three-year program, which we're a bit longer than most. The average length of PA programs is 27 months and we're 35 months. And we like the length of our program, but it does differentiate us a little bit. And then our curriculum is quite different. And again, love to go down on that path when we get to that.
0: Thanks for sharing the history. I actually didn't know that about University of Colorado, Denver, as well as some of the partnerships that were established early on to really get PA programs up and running, it sounds like.
1: Yeah. You know, I'll mention an interesting fact, little known fact, except on this campus. The founder of our program was the co-founder with Loretta Ford, a nurse, of the nurse practitioner profession. So the NP profession started here on our campus, and it was a pediatric NP program. It was a six-month program. And then from that, Dr. Silver went, he was sort of inspired by that work and that, that led him down this path. So I had to mention that. That's
0: so interesting. Yeah, we'll, we'll need to dig into that side of the program at some point down the road, but big credit to Dr. Silver. It sounds like he was quite a visionary in establishing some of these new fields. You've mentioned the curriculum a few times. It's described as an iterative spiral approach to learning. So help us understand what that is and what are the advantages to the students and faculty?
1: yeah sure so when we we decided in about 10 years ago we decided to redo our curriculum and we spent a solid five years figuring out what we want to do putting it together and actually launching it so we didn't launch it until 2018 but it we really tried to to build a curriculum that was based on theoretical on sound theoretical frameworks and one of the the theoretical ideas in education It goes way back to, I think it was in the 60s, Jerome Bruner, who was kind of a legend in in education, created this idea of the spiral model, spiral curriculum. And then a a famous medical educator, Ron Hardin, who's in Scotland at Dundee, he sort of took that and applied it in the 80s, I think, applied it to medicine, to medical training. And we loved the idea. And it's really, the spiral curriculum is really a framework. It can be as loosely applied as you wish. But the idea is that learning is best done in a way that's iterative and circles or spirals back to concepts that are important. So, for example, in our curriculum, we really are quite heavy in basic sciences in the first year. And then in the second year, we really expect that we're going to come back to all of those ideas, all of those sort of physiologic principles. But we're going to to do it at a deeper level expectations for student learning and integration is higher. And so with each iteration of the spiral, the reason it's not a circular curriculum is that the idea is that you are you are spiraling back to things, but you conti- the spiral continues to move upward in terms of the, the expectations and the level of depth and integration. And we love that idea. And it is an idea. It's not a very concrete thing, but our curriculum is based upon that notion.
0: I'm envisioning kind of a a spiral staircase in my mind as students kind of progress, you know, up towards their clinical practice, you know, adding more complexity and and maybe more nuance as they repeat some of these concepts. So we're familiar with a number of programs that integrate the spiral curriculum. And it's, it's really interesting because the founding team of Osmosis actually built our learning platform on a lot of these evidence-based learning techniques as well. What comes to mind is space repetition. So Osmosis actually started as a kind of a flashcard uh, bank that was crowdsourced by students. And the key feature was repeating this information at increasingly uh, lengthened intervals of time so that students would come back to this information again and again, but it was built into a a product. So that's actually a, a core kind of principle for Osmosis as well. And something that obviously, you know, the, the learning science backs up, so it's great to see that integrated. No,
1: you know, it's, it's one of the things that attracted us to Osmosis. We, tr- we shifted from a, to Osmosis from a different platform, and one of the things that we really liked about Osmosis was that we were exploring early on, we found these the videos on space repetition, on testing effect, cognitive load, you know, all these things that are near and dear to us and integrated into our model. To have those those videos which we actually use to to kind of indoctrinate our students to this new way of learning so yeah that's a very appealing part of osmosis
0: yeah i think you know it's it's interesting to see the changes over time right we're seeing more adoption across these programs it takes time though you know the the older model of of education with more lecture-based learning you know it you know it's not outdated necessarily but there are so many other resources that can be integrated to make it more effective right so that's so interesting yeah
1: yeah and we and the other thing too is we know so much more about how people learn particularly how adults learn than than we did when our program and our original curriculum was built. I mean it just needed to be changed because we you know we don't want to commit educational malpractice, right? We we really know so much better now how to do education. So that that's a very cool part of this had a lot of fun with this actually
0: it sounds like it yeah and i think it's so interesting that you're also educating your students about these techniques and getting them on board with this process because it's not necessarily something most programs will cover so that sounds like a a differentiator in and of itself
1: yeah we you know we do it learning to learn thread in the summer our first years come in and they start we we do a whole thread on on the that establishes some of the principles upon which our curriculum is built and and connects with expectations that we have for our students in terms of how they can best take advantage of that. And you know, we really try to shift studying practices, for example. A lot of our students come in to the program with ineffective ways of, of studying. They're not using their time well. And so you mentioned spaced uh, repetition. We talk about that. And the testing effect um, is another one of the osmosis videos. It's a nice brief video that our students can get a sense of the testing effect and then we talk about it in the classroom and how and apply it and help them understand how to use those you know those bits of learning theory to 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 do this better and by the time it takes there's a curve a learning curve and and there's some resistance to it because these students come in with habits that are ingrained over a lifetime of learning you know 12 15, 16 years of learning whatever and so What's gratifying for us is, though, by the time they're in their second year, we always have this is very anecdotal, non-scientific, but we always have students come back and say, now I get it, like, I'm really using these methodologies and, and they're working for me and it makes sense and I'm, my learning is more efficient. And that's always great to, to see this stuff in action
0: yeah that's that's the hope right that students can save some time they can spend more time with their patients, they can spend more time with their families or on their own health. So if we succeed at you know implementing some of these techniques, then I think you know students will get some of their time back and and hopefully the same is true for faculty i'm I'm curious, especially for some of these programs that might be looking to change their curriculum or or implement these ideas. What was the process like for getting, you know, your faculty on board or were they excited by this? Or what was the maybe kind of collective decision making that that happened, if if any?
1: Yeah, no. You know, this all started the journey all started in 2013. We had a two-day off-site curriculum retreat as a faculty, and we had talked about it in the lead up to this meeting that we wanted to really change our curriculum. And so the very first decision we had to make was do we make revisions? Or do we just start over? And the, the, the terminology we used is: Do we, you know, paint and move the furniture around, or do we just bulldoze it and build, you know, build the house over? And we decided to bulldoze it and just go big. And that was a fateful decision. It was important to establish that at the outset. And then we had a whole process, and I won't bore you with all the details. But at the heart of it was creating a set of values, curricular values that were really important to us. And we did that first. The first, well, the very first thing was: Do we want to drive ourselves? You know, drive ourselves nuts and, and do this big rebuild. We said we did, we did, we agreed. And then we needed to create a set of values that would really guide the kind of curriculum we would build and changes that we would make. And we still use those values to this day to inform quality. Are we, you know, are we staying on the path that we created or, or are we drifting? And if we want to make new changes, do they adhere to these Values. And these are basic things like integration, contextualized learning, things like that. So so that was really important. And then it was really important to give ourselves enough time. So we give ourselves several years to get it done and build. And then the other thing, there's a bunch to, I mean, I could go on and on about this because it was quite a process. The other thing that, two things that I would mention is one is the book, Make It Stick, which most educators have either dabbled in or read. I highly recommend. I Our our whole team read that book in advance of our, our retreat because that book articulates in a fun way, it articulates all of the, the, the things that we're doing, not all, but many of the things that we're doing are actually ideas we got that we started with from that book. And then the other thing to acknowledge, and I'll just mention one other author, this is if you are doing a big change like this, There's a book called Managing Transitions by William Bridges, and I think he is no longer with us. I think he died, but that book is a classic. And it it talks about how to manage big changes. And it's really, it's the best book that I've ever encountered on that topic. So I think anticipating this is gonna be, if you're gonna go big, anticipating that it's gonna be, you know, fraught and painful and fun and all of that stuff mixed together, that book sets you up for for anticipation of what to expect and how to manage it just a great great book.
0: We'll definitely include these in the show notes in case anyone wants to check them out but uh, as you tell the story I'm I'm having some flashbacks to actually the Osmosis founding team and some of the things that we did as an organization which is quite similar you know you mentioned you know reading a book together as maybe a team and and getting everybody on the same page and having the shared language we did that a number of times i'm thinking of the jim collins book good to grade and, and several others but we would often do this we'd read a book we would go on retreat and, and that was so helpful for our process and right. in fact in right. i want to say maybe 2018 we we did a similar retreat where we came up with our core values that really ended up guiding our entire organizational development and you know how we made decisions i think it's a really interesting piece because it's not something we really touch on in uh, health education programs very often but can you speak a little bit more to the values you mentioned a few already or maybe we can link to them but yeah what, what are some of the guiding principles that you have right
1: so there were six well interestingly interestingly we started with five and then l- later we added a sixth and the sixth was sustainability and what we meant by that was this has to be something that doesn't like wear us out and burn us all out and, and or our students. And interestingly, we were so focused on, on creating this great curriculum, we weren't thinking about how exhausting it would be. So that was actually an important value. The other five are, I, I can just tell you, they're integration. We really wanted this to be as integrated as it can be. And, and at the spiral curriculum is an integrated mindset. It creates an integrated mindset to start with. Um, learner-centeredness, which is a very kind of fluffy, vague concept, but it is important that we touch base with whatever we do is really in the best interest of learning. And we, we always come back to saying we're, we're in the business of um, creating optimal learning environments. And it's and we tell this, you know, we, we preach this gospel to our students all the time. We create an optimal learning environment. It's your job to learn. You know, this is really a, it's a learning mindset, not an instructional mindset being competency-based was our third value. And there's a whole literature and a whole, many, many discussions on that topic. And then contextualized learning was so important to us that we wanted to make as much of what we did in the classroom, so, you know, basic anatomy, all the basic sciences and pharmacology and and, um, social aspects of medicine, we wanted to make all of that happen in the context of clinical scenarios, wherever possible. And so our curriculum is based on, it's a curriculum that we kind of borrowed from the University of Calgary School of Medicine. They built this curriculum in the 90s, uh, and it's called the Clinical Presentation Curriculum. And, and to be brief, each week is a new clinical presentation. So, for example, our students will spend a week on chest pain. And during that week, they're learning about things that cause chest pain, but they're also in the thorax in the cadaver lab. They're also learning about cardiovascular and pulmonary fizz. And so that's the contextualized part. We try to create all this learning that's in the context of clinical Scenarios. So we love that. And then the the last thing is adaptive. I mentioned sustainability. The fifth thing is adaptability that we are constantly um, questioning ourselves about is this the right thing? Should we tweak it? Should we try to improve this? And that involves a lot of study. We have an intense continuous quality improvement process, and we're constantly looking at metrics on how we're doing and how we can be better. So
0: Wow, this list is is quite comprehensive. I couldn't think of a, a better list of, of values to guide a program. So we've got integration, learner centeredness, competency based, contextual contextualized learning, uh, adaptability, and then your six that you added, sustainability. Amazing! Wow, I mean, a lot of yeah, a lot of programs can probably learn from from these things, and hopefully more and more will continue to integrate like this.
1: Yeah, and we have just you know we have presented on this nationally and, and even internationally, at the European meeting, but. So we we like to talk about curricular values. I think it's such a big part of what we do.
0: Very aligned with with how we've operated osmosis. So maybe we'll we'll need to pull you in for yeah. future conversations on that. So let's sure. shift gears just a little bit to talk about the PA profession overall and the environment in which, you know, things have been changing. So how has PA education changed to keep up with changes in healthcare? And can you speak a little bit about the maybe changes in practice scope as well?
1: Yeah. Boy, it has been I mean, that's, that is a, uh, it's a big topic the 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 PA practice environment has changed so much. And and a lot of it has just been in response to kind of market forces in medicine and, and this increasing complexity in medicine, as we all know, there's this curve of, you know, doubling time in medical knowledge and that, that doubling time keeps, keeps getting shorter and shorter. And so there's so much out there and medicine has gotten so hyper specialized in some ways, and so PAs have really had to adapt to that. You know, At the end of the day, PAs are subject to the same market forces that physicians and nurses and, and everyone in the health professions is. And so PAs go where the work is, and the work has gotten increasingly more specialized. But also, PAs have been asked to do more and more. So to work at a higher scope of practice, to do more complex medicine, and that presents some challenges for PA programs. In the education space, if we're talking about a generalist, an important challenge for PA programs is how do you prepare the generalist who you know is going to go into critical care medicine, which is is not a generalist field at all. It's highly specialized and and demanding. And that's that's an ongoing challenge. And I will say one of the answers to that has been this absolute burgeoning of residencies or fellowships that both terms are used interchangeably kind of, but they're generally one year or so in length and they're postgraduate programs that prepare you for these more complex environments. I'm sure you're familiar with these, you've probably heard of them, but there's a lot that are in critical care, emergency medicine, surgical fields, and the idea is much like a medical residency for a physician to really allow you to get more specialized in that one area so that you can really hit the ground running in practice. So that's a big, Big change. There, there's, and then the other thing I'll just mention briefly is there have been there, there's an ongoing transition to more and more PA autonomy in certain areas. Now it's not PA independence. PA's are not striving for independence, but it's there's a lot of state level changes, state laws that have opened up opportunities for PA's to practice with as part of the team, but with more autonomy to really fill fill needs. And system and that's been a big change and that also requires pa education programs to think about you know who who are we putting out there and what environments are they going into and how do we best prepare them
0: it's really fascinating i think to see the the changes in healthcare overall but you mentioned you know the the market changes we're very familiar with the shortage of healthcare workers as well we've talked a lot about that on the podcast but do you think, you know, PAs are, are filling kind of a critical gap here? I mean, they've got a shorter program, you know, potentially we can reach more students, we can pull in more people into the healthcare field. Is is that playing a role here?
1: Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that is at the heart of the, the growth. The, the PA profession is growing really faster than a number of health professions. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. But I think PA and advanced practice nursing or nurse practitioner programs are increasing in number. We are now, the PA profession is now graduating over 10,000 new PAs a year. And there's, I think over, I want to say there's about 100 and, between 150 and 160,000 in practice, or at least certified right now. Oh yeah, in practice, I think there's 200,000 certified. So it really is growing. And I think it's just, the growth has been in response to, market needs. You know, there, there are these huge gaps in access. There's a, a looming, well, I, I don't know if it's looming anymore. We're in the middle of an ongoing uh, physician shortage as more and more of the baby boomer generation physicians retire. It's a demographic issue, really. There's a lot more of folks in that generation also who are retiring and their health needs are more complex as they age. So uh, not only is there a demand, I don't know when that demand will go away. I think the the need for uh, healthcare providers across across the spectrum of specialties, et cetera, c- will continue into the foreseeable future. I expect.
0: Yeah, I think we're we're keeping a close eye on some of these changes, and I'm curious if there are any other trends you're seeing in healthcare, or you know, gaps that PA's are are filling. You mentioned, you know, the shortage of physicians and particularly access. I'm thinking of rural areas potentially, or or even sometimes larger cities that may not have as many clinicians to fill their practice gaps there. What what else is playing a role here, if anything?
1: You know, one of the things that's that's interesting to us is we, we're we in Colorado, which is a very rural state, actually. It has a, a strip of humanity down the middle of the state in what we call the Front Range, and that's Denver and other bigger cities. But really, most of Colorado is, is rural or even. I think we have 15 frontier counties, even. So finding people to practice in rural environments has been a challenge for decades, and it continues to be. And I think those rural access issues have gotten even worse probably since I've been in practice. So that's something that's of great interest to us.
0: I don't know if we want to touch on maybe something like burnout too, but you know we're seeing you know some clinicians that have joined the field leave sooner, right? And and kind of experience this moral injury. And especially post COVID, we're seeing kind of more and more physicians leave leave the practice sooner. I don't know if you want to touch on anything related to that.
1: Yeah, no, I mean I think burnout wellness and burnout are a big focus in at our institution in our hospitals in our in our training programs. It's a it's a big issue that I don't anticipate will go away. I think we continue to try to do our best. The other thing that I think is interesting it's really not, not directly connected to that but the, in the, the PA world, but I think more broadly in the health professions in general, there is there tends to be leadership vacuums where there are people who go into this knowing they want to be clinicians. Some of those clinicians do research. Some end up doing education. Some are just just do clinic, and that's what they do. But there's always a need for leadership at all levels of institutions, of hospitals, of clinics. And I think PAs more and more are filling those leadership roles and there, there are more and more programs to train PAs who see themselves as leaders and need, you know, need additional training so that, you know, masters of health administration programs, things like that. I think that's a, a area of tremendous growth for my profession that I know so many great PA leaders. And, and I think I always look at my students and say, you know, that among these students, there's so many future leaders who may not see themselves as as such and so trying to create opportunities for leadership we have a scholarship within the program for four students each year that's a leadership and advocacy scholarship and it really involves some leadership and advocacy training and i think i think it's really important for our profession to contribute in that way
0: definitely and it, it sounds like yeah you're you're investing a lot in kind of creating this future generation that can fill these gaps and step into these leadership roles and you know i'm very optimistic about the future of our students just knowing and and working with so many of them what they're going through you know kind of the resilience especially with everything from COVID to you know adapting to online learning to increasing you know climate change crises and there's just a lot that they've got on their hands so i think it's great to invest in those skills in the program and maybe On the student side of things you know when you're looking for students are there particular skills or qualifications that you're trying to select for for your program in particular
1: yeah you know that is a question i get from a lot of applicants who who want a leg up and i i think what i will tell you is something i would tell anyone anyone considering applying or pursuing this profession we're looking for a couple of things sort of several domains one is just academic ability. You, while we want to really include as, as many, welcome as many people into the profession as we can, you have to be able to get it done academically. These are academically intense programs. They're they're brief and fierce programs in terms of academic expectations. So you do need to be able to, to maintain that academic intensity. That's important. But the things that we're really interested in alignment with our mission. Our mission is really around community-based health. It's around rur- rural and urban underserved um, care uh, and primary care. So you know, um, really fundamental primary care, caring for families. So we, we like to see people who show a connection and a commitment to their communities. And that doesn't need to be anything related to medicine. I, I'm impressed with somebody who applies to this program and has done the Peace Corps or has done, has spent time volunteering with a Boys and Girls Club or, you know, volunteering in youth athletics or church groups or whatever, whatever it is, we really value commitment and and longitudinal commitment to your community, to others, to, to other people, whatever form that takes. That's really important to us.
0: That makes a lot of sense and seems like it's a transferable yeah. you know, kind of skill or Correct. into right. PA programs. Right. So, Great. Well, we're a teaching company, as you know, and we love to fill in knowledge gaps. Is there a topic you think Osmosis should make a video or course about to fill in a gap that's of particular interest to you?
1: Yes. I'm glad you asked. I, there, there are several things. I think one of the things I will say is we use Osmosis is very nice for a spiral curriculum in the way that we do it. Because we have these modules that we use in the first year, and they're really mostly basic physiology models and biochem. And that's really what we focus on in the first year. But when we spiral back in our second year, we spiral back to these same concepts. But we expect that our learners, you know, we can say to them, you've had that now, right? And so we're not going to revisit it in any great detail. We just expect that you have it in in your brain and you're going to be able to pull it out and apply it. And so we assign all of those videos that we used in the first year as optional for the second year, for, for any particular week. So let's say we're doing you know, abdominal pain in, in year two, we will list a bunch of osmosis videos that are foundational things they've already done in the first year, but they can come back to. So it's really nice to have that. The one thing that I think we almost couldn't get too much of is clinically applied materials. So, so thing, you know, a, a brief session that's that may take the learner through a case, and where there are physiologic concepts but clinical concepts. You know, we do a lot of gradual reveal in our program with cases where you know we start off with a, a person of a certain age with presenting with something, and then we'll reveal more information as we go. You know, things like that. I, I never, I would never tire of those. Those are great. The the one area though that I think would be really interesting, and I'm sure it's absolutely on your radar, is AI. And we are, and I I don't know how much stuff you have on AI yet on your platform, but boy, we are immersed in it right now. We're we're both trying to figure out how to utilize AI in the program to help us with in just in terms of time savings and efficiency, and but also we know that AI is being used in the clinical space, that it's it's coming fast and furious at everyone. Our health systems in this region are using AI in various ways. I just think it'd be cool to see in stuff on AI and osmosis. I don't know what that would look like. It's a very general idea.
0: It's definitely on our radar and something that we're exploring. And we're actually hearing from students and faculty that they're already integrating things like ChatGPT, you know, to ask questions to. And obviously, you know, we we hope that we'll be able to play a bigger role in this and and serve as a really credible source. Yeah in a the ai space but i'm glad you touched on that because we're very excited about the emerging kind of field there and you mentioned things like clinical cases and clinically applied materials you know hopefully some of our newer products that are coming out in the next year or so will serve some of those gaps but of course, always interested in in that kind of feedback. So I'll I'll pass it along to the team and and make sure we're we're covering those areas.
1: The thing I'm really curious about is the sort of logical fusion of AI with adaptive learning. And these adaptive learning platforms, imagine you injecting AI into that. You could do some very, very personalized learning using these using AI platforms with an adaptive mindset where You're you're really trying to figure out that person's gaps and strengths. I just think personalized learning has always been this sort of dream. Like, how can we make each person's learning experience in the program best suited for them where they are? And I think AI blows that opportunity up. Like, it just makes, there's so many possibilities, I suspect. I don't know enough about it, but I'm very excited
0: I think that's, you know, exactly what it could be used for. In fact, early on in the Osmosis days, we we had kind of a, a pre-AI tool actually that was called Workspaces and some students do still use it where you could upload, you know, your course powerpoints or something like that and essentially we had an algorithm that would cross-check, you know, the different terms and uh, concepts that were were mentioned in this PowerPoint or, you know, syllabus even and then it would actually come up with a study schedule for students and it would say, Okay, watch these videos, complete these questions. And you know, that was a very basic form of of this. But, you know, I can imagine in, in the next year or so we'll see a lot more of these study tools and, you know, these AI tools being able to identify gaps in students' understanding and and kind of predict, you know, what areas they may need to learn more of and and really personalize it, as you said. So I think that's a way that we can better serve our, our learners and ensure that they're prepared for practice. So
1: I look forward to it. I'll keep my uh, ears to the ground in terms of what you're doing at Osmosis, because I know this is going to happen. It's going to happen quickly, I suspect.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing the changes kind of accelerate, I guess, every week. But we have many students, you know, in early healthcare professionals in our audience, and given your background and your experience, you know, in healthcare over the years, what advice would you offer them about meeting some of these challenges? Whether it's you know technology, or we mentioned burnout, you mentioned you know access to care. What are some of the challenges that you've seen, and maybe advice that you would give them to address those challenges?
1: Yeah, I think I mean that's a really good question, and one that I I that comes up now and again. And I think my answer is going to be fairly general, (laughs) but I think one is advice that I would give to my kids or anyone is do allow your curiosity to lead you to some degree. So, you know, pursue the things that you're really interested in because when the going gets tough in in clinical medicine, and it does, you have rough days. If you're in an area that you're excited by and that, and, and that you're curious about, I think it helps get through those tough days at work or the tough periods in your job so let your curiosity guide you for one and then two i think we're such a team based profession and i think most medicine is really focused on on team-based care and teams but the pa profession started you know we team is a kind of in our in our dna and i think embracing that and, and you know, for for an early career person or someone even contemplating this, decide how, what that means to you and embrace it. And and you know, we when in the classroom, for example, we do a lot of team activities, and our classes really support each other, lean on each other, and I think that's the environment, right? That's the thing you're looking for in in a medical practice, in a PA program. But the value of team is so important. So I, there's there's advice in there somewhere. yeah i think team is big
0: i love that and even though i you know mentioned that this advice is for our audience i'm definitely getting a lot of value from the advice that that you and other podcast guests share so i love the curiosity piece of allowing that to lead you i think you know especially folks in healthcare can sometimes go down a a predictable path or you know think that it's going to be kind of laid out for them but there's really so much variety and opportunity you know alongside that path or even within it so we'll pass that along and and hope that students really listen to that.
1: I, I hope so too. I mean, i it's advice I give to my kids. I have teenagers and they tend to be very goal oriented. And I think goals are so important, but our, the students that we get in our program are super goal oriented. They're students who have kept their nose to the grindstone for most of their academic careers. And if the goal becomes the, the ultimate end, you can lose sight of other things. And I think Being curious, giving yourself time to step back, we really build that into our program. We try to create opportunities for reflection wherever we can. And I think getting in touch with what really drives you curiosity-wise is so important.
0: Yeah, well, I hope to see a lot more of our students joining your programs and listening to this advice and enjoying the spiral curriculum and all that the University of Colorado has to offer. I'm very you know, excited about what we talked about today and think a lot of folks can benefit from hearing these ideas and hopefully integrating them more. But thank you so much, Jonathan, for being with us today. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience before we close up?
1: No, great. It's just great to spend the time with you, Hillary. Appreciate it. And hopefully we'll cross paths again in the
0: future. Well, I'm sure we will. I'm not far away in Colorado, up here in Fort Collins, so hopefully we can grab a coffee or something like that. I'm Hillary Acer. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part and raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org/raise the line podcast.